sometimes in my family, my wife and I really have to watch what we say. Sometimes we're discussing some potential plan of maybe we'll take a vacation or maybe we'll do a little spontaneous trip up to the, uh, to the lake. In fact, the last time we went up to Woods Canyon Lake, my wife and I, we were out, we were, I think we were walking, we were talking about it. We're like, maybe we should go to Woods Canyon Lake on, what was it, we ended up going on a Monday or something? And we were talking about it and seeing how it would work out. I'm like, yeah, I think this would work out on this certain day if we just got up and went. And, and then I was ready to kind of tell the boys when we got home. I was like, just, just don't, don't tell them yet. You know? And I'm like, yeah, you're right. We'll just, it'll just be, it, it gets published, but then it gets published back at us. Like, well, all the questions. Well, what time? What do we bring in? Can we also do this? Can we do this? Can we do this? And, and so we're like, don't say anything yet. You know, you got to, when you publish it, man, things just, or when you give the word and it gets published, it's like it just goes crazy. Well, God, God gave the word. He gave the word to Moses. He gave the word to the prophets. And in the Old Testament, it got published. It was written on stone. It was written on parchment. The prophets had it written down. Scribes kept copying it. God promised that that word that he gave is not going to perish, and it's his responsibility to keep his word in publishing, really, even though men get involved in it, some negatively, some positively. God says, my word will always be there, but God gave the word. God gave the word in the New Testament. He gave it through the apostles. He gave it through, uh, you know, those the, the apostles of his and the apostle Paul, and, and it was written, and they passed it, when they, particularly some of the epistles, as they received it, they would make copies and pass it on to another church. And um, It was pretty well known what the Bible was, the, the inspired scriptures were by the time of Christ's day. The, old, the Jews knew what God had said and what God had not said, and so they had their word, they had the, the law and the prophets that they called it. We would call it the Old Testament, all those Old Testament books. And then the New Testament, it... You know, it was like you had Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Probably Mark was the first gospel. Paul had some of his epistles. Probably First and Second Thessalonians were some of the early epistles. We think, we believe the revelation of John was the last New Testament book written. Um, and then after a while, the church, the church, I say as an institution, recognized that this is scripture, this is not, ah, that Clement, Book of Clement, we don't think that's really was authoritative, or the book of Barnabas, we're glad Barnabas wrote something, but yeah, that's not, and so they could, they discerned, and I'm not going to get into the whole, it's called canon, the canonization, or um, um, canonizing, this, in recognizing the, the inspired New Testament scriptures, but the scriptures came, and then eventually it was getting translated into all these different languages, and and then, of course, we, we know English, and it, that's what we kind of concern ourselves with. We're going to look at that tonight. But let's ask, I'm going to ask this question, we'll answer it. I'll try to keep it brief and try to just highlight some things. It's an eightfold answer. Why should I even care about Scripture translations? Now, let me just say this. Sometimes I wonder, when I meet some Christians, I wonder if they would even care at all what book I read. I really mean this. If I got up here and started reading from the Book of Mormon and then just preached something, I really think some people still might come to church because they're just in the habit of coming to church. Or if I read some just really sloppy translation of the Bible, some people might not care. And I wish they would. I want people to care. 
At the same time, some people really care, and they care about the one that, I, that we share tonight and our, the standard that we use for our, our church. They care that it's used. They care that it's in every single thing that they ever have published in their house or on a picture on the wall. But some people, while they care about that, they don't read it themselves, and that's sad too. So, um, but why should I care about this? I'll try to go through this quickly. Why should we even care about the whole idea of Scripture translations? We should care because God has spoken. He said something. He said something. Thus saith the Lord many times. There's great evidence that all these... You know, just the whole idea of manuscript evidence of the Bible shows this is God's Word. This is unlike any other book. God has spoken. If God has spoken, when somebody speaks, you better, whoa, what did He say? What was it that He was written down of what He said? Number two, we should care because God has promised to preserve His words. I should care about the Scripture translation issue because there's a lot of Bible translations just speaking in English. And if they don't all... Now, some of them have synonymous words. Some of them are basically saying the same thing in synonymous words. Others are like, wait a minute, that's different. Or that's missing, that's not. Well, wait a minute, God said, uh, He said one thing. And you're saying He didn't say it. You're saying He did. Or you're saying He said it this word. And you're saying this word. He promised to preserve it, so it's going to be one of them. And so I should care because God has spoken and He's promised to preserve His words. So I want to know which ones are His preserved words. Psalm 12, 6 and 7, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Um, Another reason why we should care about this issue is number three, because a Christian is called and told to respect and feed on every word. Psalm 119, 16, then shall I not be ashamed, Psalm 119, verse 6, then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. It'll take me a lifetime, and you know this, it's a challenge to read through your whole Bible in a year if you make that a part of your rhythm, especially as you get older. You know, If you're young, do it now. It was easier when reading through my whole Bible in a year when I was younger. It's a little harder to do it now. Um, I can, but sometimes I don't want to just force myself. And but sometimes even reading through your whole Bible, you're like, you may not understand every word, every verse. But here's one thing I do know. I may not understand every word, every verse, but I know I'm supposed to respect every word. I know I, at some point I need to get to every word. Because man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. I should care because a Christian's called to feed and, and on every word and respect every word. I should also care about this issue because there is an adversary, the devil. He opposes God's words. He's not in favor of God's words. He wants to do away with them. If he can't do away with them, he wants to to, uh, counterfeit them. If he can't counterfeit them, he wants to take the ones that are there and misapply them. Say, this is how it means. This is what it means. He's just trying to make it to where it's not how... Um, where it doesn't have effect on us. He wants to deceive, he wants to counterfeit, he wants to hide, he wants to destroy, etc. There's an adversary who does that. We know that in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 11.3 talks about him beguiling the church. That Paul was concerned about Satan beguiling the church of Corinth. Number five, we should care because it involves a serious warning. 
God's words involve a serious warning. We mentioned this before, Deuteronomy 4, 2, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and Revelation 22, verse 18 and 19, to those three beginning, middle, and end of the Bible. In the, begin, the beginning section of the Bible, Deuteronomy, it says, You shall not add from my word, nor diminish from it. Don't add or subtract from my word. In Proverbs 30, he says the word, he says that the, add thou not unto his word, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. And then in Revelation, it says, if any man shall add unto the words of this book of this prophecy, God shall add unto him the things that are written there in the plagues. If any man shall take away, God shall take away his place out of the book of life and the things that are written in this book. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't, don't add or subtract then. You know, sometimes I've told you, sometimes I'll say something and one of my, I'll tell one of my kids, I'm like, hey, we're going to go, we're going to go to McDonald's after dinner tonight and get an ice cream. And maybe one of them will be like, yeah, and afterwards you're going to the park. And I was like, don't add to my word. <laughs> don't put me on the spot like that, you know. That's kind of funny. But with some people, they want to add on, yeah, and God said this too. Or God didn't say that. It's like, I want to find out what he said and just respect it, not add or subtract from it. All right, number seven, why should I care? Pardon me, number six. And we'll probably get into this more. We will get into this, Lord willing, more. It's because some translations use a sloppy translation method. I could have somebody translate for me verbally, and they can be sloppy with what I say. I've had this happen before where I'm, where I'm, uh, I'm maybe dealing with, in the Spanish ministry, and even going to some people's homes, um, I've had it, you know, I can understand some, but sometimes I'll have somebody translate for me and they'll say, the parent, I had this happen with my family, the parent was telling me something and usually the kid, the teenager or the kid's bilingual. The parent's trying to tell me something in Spanish and then the kid's, the teenager or the kid's going to translate and the parent's going on and on and on and the kid says, they just want to say thanks for coming to visit. Well, they just spoke for like a minute. That's all they said, <laughs> you know. And I know they're probably just like summarizing it, you know. But um, some trans, now this, that's okay. I guess it's, all right, it's okay to summarize maybe what another person's saying if it's understood that by them that you're doing that. But with God, he, he wrote it, he has his word, it was in Hebrew with the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. And we have manuscripts and uh, we're, uh, we have some manuscripts that sh where you can draw from those two mother languages and pull it into the, to the current language you're dealing with. But the way you translate or transport it, you don't want to drop anything off while you're transporting. You won't let anything fall out of the vehicle, so to speak. Here's what God said in Hebrew. Let's bring it over the best way we can in English. Here's what God said in Greek. Let's translate it. Let's transport it over into English. Don't leave anything behind as much as possible. Sometimes it takes three or four English words to, to describe one Greek word. Same thing in the Hebrew. So here's my point. Some translators are like, oh, we're coming out with a new translation. Well, they don't always translate the say. They might just paraphrase some things. Um, so there's really two types of, real quick, there's two types of translation methods. Primarily, there's a dynamic equivalence, which leans, which tends to a paraphrase. Here's the gist. I want to know the gist of the Bible, but I want to know all the words first, then I can get the gist. Okay, so there's the NIV does, it tends to do a, par, uh, uh, not paraphrase, there's that paraphrase is actually even to the, to the left of that, if you will. 
The Living Bible is a paraphrase. It's just kind of, if, if you want to read it, fine. It's just going to give you kind of a gist, like a commentary. But I don't take it seriously. Though the NIV is kind of to the, to the right of that, you could say. It tends to paraphrase some sections. Um, and then the other, so there's the dynamic equivalence. It tends towards paraphrasing. And then there's what's called formal equivalence, where, they, where they, there's every effort is made to bring over the meaning of every word from that original language and present it in an understandable way, every word in the English or the next language that you're translating to. It's dynamic equivalence, formal equivalence. Um, the King James Version uses formal equivalence style. The New American Standard Bible uses most of the time a formal equivalent style, but it draws from a different text, which is the other problem. The New King James Version uses a formal, equi formal equivalent style, but sometimes it's not always consistent with it. But the King James Version is more consistent with it. So we should care because, hey, if somebody's translating, I want you to get every word. Um, I would want every word as much as possible shown to me in, the, in my English language of what God said. Another reason we should care is because not all translations use the same ancient text. We talked about that before. I'm gonna, I am gonna think we'll return to that in another time, but to try to summarize it, there's two texts. There's the, it's called the critical text. The critical text really wasn't used or known much until the 1800s, and it has fewer manuscripts. They date older, they're older in date, but there's few of them and they contradict among themselves. I think there's less than 100, if I remember right, on our chart. Let me look quickly. Um, there's fewer than 50 of those manuscripts. This is Now we're talking New Testament. 50 of the critical text manuscripts, they contradict more often between themselves, even though they're older, and yet this is crazy. Most versions, they go right to that. The English Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible. The New King James really doesn't. It picks at it a few times, and I don't know why. And then some of these other ones, they go, I'm going, why are you going to that one? It was hardly even used. It was kind of like you know, it was put away. Some of, these, some of those Greek texts were, uh, one of them they found in a monastery in a garbage. And uh, the Sinaiticus, sounds like a, you know, a disease of the sinuses, but Sinaiticus is the name of the, one of the texts. Uh, one of the manuscripts that was in a monastery in, in the Sinai Peninsula, they found one, then other ones, and they just were, they were old, and, but they, and they were enamored with them, but they contradicted between you. The other, the other family of Bible texts is this, it's called, we would call it the received text. Now, it's, it even branches off, there's even another one called the majority text, it kind of blends both of them together, that's really what the New King James uses. But the received text is basically, uh, it comes from the family of manuscripts that represents, again, New Testament stuff, texts that were used by uh, primarily Protestants and Baptists in the years past. There is some slight, when you get the 5,000 of them where there are, there is some small variation among some of the rendering in there. There is. But it's, it's very little compared to the contradictions, many contradictions in a small number of the other ones that are found in the critical text from which a lot of the modern, almost all modern versions come from. I, 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 it's, it's weird. But anyways, um, so the, why should we care? Because they're, they're using two different... I mean, if you're going to translate something, 
You, you get to be the translator. What are you going to do? You're going to pick this one? You're going to pick this one? How are you going to translate? Are you going to paraphrase? You're going to try to be as literal as possible? <clears throat> so I um, not all translations come from the same ancient text. And then why should we care? Because the, this is, let's just be honest. Some people it doesn't bother them, but a lot of people or people that take the Bible seriously is this. A multiplicity of translations can cause confusion. It can cause confusion. Now, I'm not saying, I'm going to say something, maybe you might disagree with it. I'm not saying it's not possible that we could ever have another English translation that's accurate. I'm not saying, I, I'm not going to say God can't do anything like that. Perhaps he could. But right now, it is very confusing. You got this one, you got this one, you got this one. And part of me thinks it's part of the American culture of, you know, our styles change every year almost in clothing. I mean, in the 1800s, if you wore something in 1890, you were still cool in 1900, man. I'm sure. If you wore something in 1864, probably in 1874, you were okay. You were okay, probably. I'm going to make an assumption there. But if you wore something in 1974 and you wore the same thing in 1984, no way. You see how we're always like, oh, we've got to change it, got to change it, got to change it, got to change it. We're losing your attention. Let's get a new style. We want to sell something. And it's happening in Bible versions. Oh, let's do the NIV again. We're going to get it right this time. That's what one of their publishers said a few years ago. We're going to get it right this time. Let's do another one of these and let's do another one. Let's and they just keep coming out and you're going, man, why do they... And I think it's because they just wanted to have another thing to sell. There's probably some that are very genuine and they're sincere and that in what they're doing. But um, the Bible says God is not the author of confusion. I was honestly, as I was younger, just looking at this issue, I was like, man, I'm kind of confused. Which one should I? There was a point where <clears throat> when I was in Bible college, the first Bible college I went to, there was a plus and a minus. Um, I had plus, there was a teacher I had that taught, the Greek teacher I had was good. He would basically be where we're at. But the guy before him that taught me in some other classes that happened to not be my Greek teacher just in time, the time that I took Greek, it was good, he took a totally different position on Bible translations and Greek texts. One said the critical text, the other said the received text, and <clears throat> they didn't fuss with each other, but I was like, man, this is kind of confusing. And one advocated this one. They, they were gentlemen-like. The other advocated this one. I thought, man, this is so confusing. I felt so confused. And I, I just prayed, and I fasted, and I took it seriously. And, and, and I felt like, for me, God led me to a position that I'm at today for um, where I'm at. But I remember it was like, this is confusing. I don't think God's involved in would want me confused. All right, so let's look at this. That's why you should care. How did the scripture come to us? That's number three. I'm going to skip over that because we, I can kind of summarize that to you, and I did it a little bit. Look at how in number four on your page there, how did the English scriptures come to us? How did the English scriptures come to us? And so here's the deal. There's I, from what I read, there's been a lot of English scriptures. I've heard people say, the King James Version was the first English translation. It's really not. Even before Wycliffe, there was attempts to make to translate into English, which would be like old English, which you would not understand old English. 
There's Old English, Middle English, Middle Modern. I'm told that Middle Modern is what we have here. Middle Modern English. King James Version. And then we're Modern now, English. But apparently there was other scripture translations. So I'm going to highlight some of the, the more major translations here today. Do I have this on, John? Am I good? I'm not good, Johnny. Okay, I'm going to go back, John. Okay, so here's, we're going to look at Wycliffe, Coverdale, Matthew's Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, Bishop's Bible, King James Version. This was a big deal, what happened here. What happened here, these two are a big deal because they came from William Tyndale's work. He didn't have a Bible named after him. He has a New Testament. He died before he could finish it, and they, they came along and did the rest of the work. This was a really big deal because this was a very popular Bible, the Geneva Bible. Our pilgrims came over with this Bible. They didn't have the King James Version. They were trying to get away from the king. Right. Really, honestly. They, this came out of Switzerland, and then this one. So let's just go through a few of these. John, go to the next here. So John Wycliffe. So he, they call him the morning star of the Reformation. Now we're thinking in kind of Protestant mentality right now. Protestant means... People who protested the Catholic Church and came out of the Catholic Church, or some of them wanted to reform the Catholic Church. And uh, there was always, I believe, protesting Baptists during that time and before that time. But he was an early protester within the Catholic Church of Catholicism and some of their doctrine. Now, if you read into his life, you're not going to find him to be a Baptist, but I believe he was saved. And he advocated... He still had some kind of Catholic mentality, but he advocated that this, now get this, this is radical. He advocated that people should be able to read the Bible in their own language by themselves, not just have a priest or somebody tell it to them. That was radical. He was hated for that. Your own language, not Latin? Yeah, my own language. So then... You mean that people shouldn't all be forced to learn Latin? No, they should just be able to hear God's word in their native tongue and, and even be able to read it themselves. Yeah, that's what he advocated, and he was hated for it. Um, he had the first complete English translation. The downside is he used, it was a translation of a translation. So the Bible's Greek or Hebrew, Greek, those are the mother languages. We want to find the best manuscripts that have those where we can read it in the mother language, then you translate the best things. You translate from that. You can compare with other current translations, but the best things to translate from. What he did was, a, there was a very popular translation called Jerome's Latin Vulgate. It was a very popular Latin translation of the Bible, but it had a strong Catholic flavor to it. I think it was done in the three, or late, three or four hundred, something like that. He translated from a translation, but you know what? It was better than nothing. For a lot of those people in English and in England, they were happy to have that. And it was so controversial. He had, they had chapter but not verse divisions. Do you know Paul didn't put that down when he wrote the Thessalonians? Chapter 1! It just That's why you look, it's okay if it feels like, man, the thought seems like it didn't end here. It seems like it should go into this next chapter. You know, they're not perfect. It's helpful, but it's not inspired. Chapter verse divisions are not inspired. The words are. Okay, so John Wycliffe, but... Next thing, John. I don't know why I have this here. Listen to this. After he died, I'm going to try to read, I'm going to read this to you. After John Wycliffe died, he was hated, they buried him. 
43 years after his death, officials dug up his body, burned his remains. No, wait a minute. That's bad. If you go through the effort of digging up somebody's body to burn it, you must really hate him. Well, that's what the established Catholic Church did in England of him because they were against him doing what he did with the scriptures. They dug up his body, they burned his remains, and they threw his ashes into the River Swift, whatever that is in England. <laughs> it's, but, but what's ironic, it was, it was, it was I, I guess it is ironic. They think, oh, we don't like this, throw him in the River Swift. Still, they could not get rid of him. As a later chronicler said, thus the brook, where his ashes were thrown, hath conveyed his ashes into Avon, Avon into Severn. He's naming off rivers. Severn into the narrow seas, and they into the main ocean. Thus the ashes of Wycliffe are the emblem of his doctrine, which now is dispersed the world over. <laughs> it's, in other words, it was symbolic of really what he did. He got people, yeah, we should have our own Bible. We should have it in our language. And, and it just spread and the established church tried to stamp that out, but really it just it didn't. By their effort in trying to stamp it out, it made people want it more. That's John Wycliffe with that first translation. Go to the next one, John. <clears throat> now, I want to tell you about John Huss. He did not do a Bible translation, but I want to tell you something about him. Um, by the way, real quick, Pastor Paul Chapel wrote a book called The Out, is it Outsiders? You guys got that for me. And I'm, I'm almost done with it. He actually, it's a good book. It summarizes some of these guys, Protestants and Baptists, and gives you a kind of a little summary of their life. He has a good section on John Huss. John Huss was a follower of Wycliffe. Wycliffe's followers were called Lollards. People who followed Huss were called Hussites. Uh, he was burned at the stake um, in 1415 using Wycliffe. They used Wycliffe's manuscripts as kindling. Yeah. Let's get the fire started with this right here. And I, w I, I meant to bring some quotes of his, but he, the, you should read about the moments that he's being taken, apprehended, and tied up to be burned. And um, basically some of his last words are, uh, what I have taught with my lips, I now seal with my blood. Great story, John Huss. Again, uh, Protestant, these guys are trying to reform the Catholic Church. Uh, go ahead, next one. Okay, now here's, I really like William Tyndale because from what he did here, basically every version you hear, every translation after this are basically drawing off of him, including, you know, the King James Version, 90%, they say, of what you read in the New Testament of your King James Version was basically what he originally translated. Again, he was hated like Wycliffe. He was, he was chased around in England, he even had to go over into Europe and hide. He was put in jail before. When he ended up dying, uh, he was betrayed. He was betrayed by a close friend and, and given over to them, and they, and, they, and they strangled him. But here's the deal. He was the first to translate from original language. And I'm talking for the English stuff now. I'm not talking about what Luther did and what some others did in other languages. He was the first to translate from Hebrew and Greek. And he had... There was a man named Erasmus who was a Greek scholar. He was a Catholic, but he was kind of a right to the right of where they are, uh, who compiled some reliable manuscripts, in which basically amount to what we use in our Greek, the New Testament we use uh, from our King James Version. 
he translated from those manuscripts the received text and then from the Hebrew and he only got through he only got through the whole New Testament he got sections of the Old Testament and then go ahead and go to the next scene John he was betrayed they caught him uh, they strangled him and burned him at the stake. His last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Isn't there, there's a movie called God's, oh, what was it called? It's like um, God, there's a movie about him. Miss Irene, some of you know Miss Irene, she told me about it. She said it'd be good for me to watch it. I haven't watched it yet though. Lord, open the King of England's eyes. He cried that out. Well, what's great is not too many years later, in fact, go to the next one. I don't have it. I think it's around this time, in the years following, the King of England became favorable now to English translations. See, some of us, it's hard in our mind to think, why would a king be against the Bible? They were against the Bible. As long as... It, keep it with the priests and the bishops and the whoever those highfalutin guys in the church are. Let them do. They're the paid professionals. Don't let it get down to these people. Something bad might happen. But now it's becoming more, okay, yeah, we do need the Bible. We need the Bible for the common people. We need the Bible in our English language. So this guy, Miles Coverdale, he did a translation. He did it. He drawn from, he actually picked up and did the rest of Tyndale's work. He, he, he didn't use all of his Old Testament, some of his Old Testament books. Go to the next one. This guy, not too many years later, John Rogers, he was more, even more faithful to Tyndale's translation and then translated the rest. He basically did what the other guy did, but was probably more faithful in rendering what Tyndale had. So they had the, this is interesting, he called it the Matthews Bible. This guy went by a, a, a false name, Thomas Matthew, because they knew he was associated with Tyndale, and there was still this kind of edginess about Tyndale that he might get persecuted. So he did it under a pseudonym, a phony name. And uh, anyways, they did that English translation. They go to the next one. And then the great Bible. This is the, finally Henry VIII, not the greatest guy, split the church, had kind of his own little agenda, start his own church. Henry VIII, he officially authorized the Great Bible. So this is actually the first official authorized English version. The Great Bible! Henry VIII, I think it's because he kind of gets a lot of popularity for it or something. You know, it's like, they're just sometimes politicking, some of these guys. Apparently there was some lovely picture of him, probably not in color, pretty sure not in color, um, of him in the preface of this Bible. Kind of placating to the king there. They also called it the chained Bible because he had to chain it to the pulpit. And it was big. The chained Bible. Everybody didn't want anybody stealing it. And then go to the next one. There was another one. Oh, oh no, this is the Geneva Bible. It was very influential. So Mary the first, they call her Bloody Mary. In England, there was just there was this tension going on. There was a kind of they were having their own reformation religiously. England was dominated by Catholics. And then there was a lot of Protestants, a lot of gospel preachers that didn't want the Catholicism and didn't want the state church. Some didn't mind the state church, they just wanted to make it better. And so they ended up 
basically becoming like a type of Protestant state church, the Church of England. And there was still some who wanted to be Catholic. And there was even this kind of this back and forth on um, the way the kings and the queens were. And finally, Queen Mary, she's a strong Catholic. When she became the queen, oh boy, blood was shed. And people fled also because some of the... Uh, some of the translators, some of the reformers, they left. They went to Switzerland, to Geneva, Switzerland. And they, I don't know, I can't tell you all the names. One of them was Coverdale that we saw earlier. He also helped translate this. It became kind of the, the primary Bible of the 16th century and even into the 17th century. It reads like a King James Version, most of it. It was used by our pilgrims. John Knox, the Presbyterian William Shakespeare and John Bunyan used the Geneva Bible, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. It was the first Bible for English, the first English Bible to use both chapter and verse divisions. Um, John Wycliffe just had the chapter divisions. Now we have chapter and verse divisions. I don't know if any other language trans other translations had that, but I know this was the first for the English. All right, and then go to the next one. They tried to do another one, the Bishop's Bible. They thought... We didn't, they didn't, authorized by Queen Elizabeth, she thought that the Geneva Bible wasn't as good and they needed to revise the Great Bible and they did want it, but it never, this never became very popular. And then the next one, John. And then the King James Version, and I'll probably have to talk a little bit more about this in our next time uh, to give us a picture of really what happened behind the scene. Don't, don't go thinking this guy's an angel right here. He's kind of weird if you... Some things are just kind of weird about them. But you know what I realize is that God sometimes takes people and he can just, you know, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And he can, he can, he can move on a king's heart and move through a king to do what he wants. I mean, Donald Trump was, I was like, I do not want Donald Trump. I really didn't. I mean, I'm conservative and all that. I'm like, oh, this guy just gets on my nerves. And he still does sometimes, but I thought, man, look what he's done for Israel. He's really standing for Israel. I hope he doesn't change. He stands very strong for Israel in our country. And he's done some uh, for, for our policy as a country towards Israel. And he's, he's been very pro-life. And then he's got a bunch of other stuff that we think are probably goofy. But I think, man, that was good. I'm glad he's done that. And sometimes I just wonder if it's the Lord moving in his heart. Well, this I think the Lord's using this thing that happened here in 1604 there was called this Hampton conference Hampton court conference and he gathered together a bunch and he basically said we'd need a new translation and um, and they uh, they assembled at first it was gonna be 54 scholars ended up with 47 some of them died I think even the guy that was over them I think his name was Bancroft he died before it was done they were divided into six groups now Again, this isn't one. This is scholars. And they're not all Baptists. They're basically Church of England guys, some Puritan guys. And they begin working. Okay, we're going to work on the first four books of the Bible. You do the next four. And, and these, these groups, and they're at Oxford and Cambridge and one of the other ones, and they're doing their thing. And um, when each person, work, each person would work on a text of Scripture, and he'd come over to his other bigger group, and they would all read each one of them, and they'd critique each other in the next group, and then they'd make necessary changes, and then they'd go to the other group, and then, then the groups would come together, and it's like it was very uh, well done on 
checking and cross-checking each other. And it's been the most influential English Bible. Now, this is just what I found by way of, you know, what I believe is facts for the Bible that we have. And um, as of right now, I did a survey. Pardon me, I didn't do a survey. I read a survey. 2014, they did a survey of Bible readers in the United States. So that's still six years ago. And this survey said 55% of those who read the Bible read the King James Version. I hope that's true. And then 19% is the NIV and then others for the rest of the percentages. There was one done later, I think three years ago, and it was less. It was like 33% read the King James Version of all Bible readers. And then all the other percentages are less than that of other translations. So it may not be that everybody keeps reading their Bible, but I'm glad it's been an influential Bible. Now think about this. The Bible, this, this version's been an influential Bible even in times when they didn't speak King James English. You know, it's just because it's, it's, it's accurate. And so I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful God gave the word. I'm thankful somebody helped publish it, which involved the translation, and that we have it today. And that we can use it and read it and grow from it. And so I hope that helps you kind of give a little idea. Do you ever just like, what did, wait a minute, where did my, how did I get my Bible? No, I know, I, I went to Walmart, but I mean, how did I get it? How did it come, you know? And it's good to know kind of the history, the path it took to get to us. And, and we could say more about it. You know, there's been bloodshed. I mean, think about even William Tyndale, the blood that he shed himself. And others who fought, I mean, the England went through its own reformation of people insisting that people be able to read the Bible. And there was blood. It wasn't like there was just protest. There was blood that shed. There was a lot of blood that shed because of that. And we get the fruit of it right now. Humanly speaking, we have the fruit of it right now in our lap having a Bible. We should be thankful for that. Well, let's stop. Let's, be, let's end there and thank the Lord.